1: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 165 of the coronavirus crisis tonight, a reopening reality check as stocks plunge and new cases spike.
2: We have a major sell-off on Wall Street today. Stocks tank. I think we're going to have a, a tough slug going here. Investors hit the sell button as fears mount. The reopening of America has risks. ...and maybe reversals.
3: We expect to see rises and surges as it will reopen.
2: Tonight, the areas where cases are suddenly spiking... ...and a new warning over America's food supply. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this
1: Thursday night. Nashville tonight announcing the city will delay Phase 3 of its reopening... ...as cases in that city spike... Dr. Alex Jahangir is the chair of the Nashville Metro Coronavirus Task Force. We get right to him this evening. Doctor, welcome. It's good to talk to you.
4: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Talk to me about the decision that was made today. So in
4: Nashville, you know, overall, we, we have been doing relatively well um, with, with, um, with our metrics. However, we did see a slight um, increase in our cases over the past several weeks. And and past 14 days, our trend has been going up. However, I would say that, um, you know, we what we have is great hospital capacity, great um, public health capacity and great testing capacity. However, because we are starting to see that increase in um, case trends, the mayor and I thought it'd be good to pump the brakes a little bit to make sure the next week or so we still um, are able to keep everything under control.
1: To be clear, your 14 day average is elevated. That's one of the concerns. How long do you think this delay in the next phase of reopening will last?
4: Well, I think um, we watch this um, daily. So I think we'll watch the rolling 14 um, day average, maybe over the next uh, anywhere from three to five to seven days. Um, but I think, you know, Mayor Cooper is, is committed to making sure that when we reopen the city even further, um, that we do it in a safe fashion for all Nashvilleans.
1: These are these are tough decisions that were made at the time they were made about reopening. Do you think Governor Lee acted too early and too soon in reopening the state?
4: Well, you know, I, I, I think in Nashville, we're taking a, a, a careful uh, approach. Um, obviously, Middle Tennessee and Nashville is not a, a, a island unto itself. And so what surrounding counties are doing are um, relevant to what happens here in Nashville. But I'm very proud of what we've done here in Nashville to, to keep our hospital capacity down, to keep our mortality rate down. We actually have, a, I think, those the lowest mortality rates for a city our size and lower than our state and our nation. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of what we're doing here in Nashville.
1: Tell me about your testing, your contact tracing—those things in the toolbox, if you will—that you're going to need to take these next steps.
4: Sure. So when we started this in four, in, in March, we had four people doing contact tracing. We now have raised that to 125 people, which is which is gold standard, I think, for a city of our size. Furthermore, our testing capacity has risen to a point that we're doing about 7,500 tests on average a week in our city. Um, over ha- nearly half of that is conducted. Um, In community assessment centers that we started that
1: are free to anyone that wants to come through and get them done. Dr. Jahangir, it's good to talk to you tonight. We'll be following what's happening in your city of Nashville. You be well. Thank you for having me. Okay, now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, it's nice to see you again about this decision that was made today in Nashville. What's your reaction? look, I think it's prudent um, that states take decisions to slow down
5: the reopening as they have a surge in cases. Nashville has an uptick in cases. Um, Tennessee's never really had a decline in cases. If you look at the trend line for Tennessee since, really, March, um, they've had a slow increase in cases. They never had a surge in cases, never had a very large number of cases, but it's been slowly creeping up. And that's like a lot of other parts of this country. Um, we're, We're accustomed to looking at the states that had epidemics where they had a lot of cases and they've come down their epidemic curve. But there's a lot of parts of the country that have had this slow burn of cases. They've had consistent infections all the way through. Maybe the cases dropped off a little bit, but now they're picking back up. And there's a lot of states like that. Tennessee is sort of in that bucket. Um, We always expected that as we reopened, cases would bounce back up. But for a lot of states, they're bouncing back up off a baseline of spread. That was there all along.
1: You tweeted a little bit earlier tonight, I noticed, nationally, the positivity rate is flat. But as you mentioned, there are hot spots we need to keep an eye on. Arizona, for example, is seeing 80 percent of its ICU beds now taken. Florida cases are increasing by 1,000 per day. We know what's happening in Texas. How concerned are you, Dr. Gottlieb, about these hot spots we're seeing?
5: It's concerning. What I put out on Twitter tonight was a seven-day rolling average, and the average doesn't really show a sharp uptick. There's a trend, there's a slight trend towards up in the last few days, but the positivity rate nationally is about flat, about where it was, around 5%, and we're still accruing about 20,000 or so new cases a day nationally. Um, part of that's driven by the fact the Northeast is coming down while other parts of the country go up, so parts of the country that haven't been affected by this are starting to see increases as the parts of the country that were hard hit continue to come down their curves. But you look at Arizona with 1,200 cases new day and a rising positivity rate of 15%. Texas with 1,600 cases a day and a 7% positivity rate. South Carolina also looks very concerning, about 500 cases a day, which is a lot in a small state, but a positivity rate of 11%. Watching these positivity rates go up is what's concerning. Um, it's not just a function of more testing that we're seeing more cases get turned over. They're actually reporting a higher percentage of the cases that they test as being positive and so that's another concerning trend. So there are parts of the country that are experiencing what would constitute an outbreak right now. Um, we have more testing in place, so hopefully it doesn't get out of control. But the concerning thing about these states is they really haven't isolated the source of the outbreak. Even Tennessee, um, they haven't isolated it to a, you know, a facility or a certain set of activities And so it might end up being that it's emanating from certain places, but they don't know that yet. And that's what's going to
1: frustrate their ability to take decisive action. If you're the governor tonight of either Texas uh, or Arizona or South Carolina, your advice would be what?
5: Implement good tracing. I mean, there's a lot of pushback in certain quarters to track and trace because people feel there'll be so much infection that it's going to be the government, you know, tracking down every individual and tapping them on the shoulder and telling them they have to self-isolate or go get tested and they'll be intrusive. So people see it as an intrusion into individual liberty. And so there's a lot of pushback in certain states, including Texas, where there's an organized effort against the public health interventions of track and trace. But it's not just tracking and tracing isn't just to find individuals. It's to find settings where infection is spreading. And that's how we determine that homeless shelters were a source of spread nursing homes. We were, able, we were able to trace infections back to those places and also certain settings of uh, employment. We found warehouses and other places that en- ended up being the sources of outbreaks in communities because we were able to trace infection back to those establishments. And that's why you want to have those good public health tools in place.
1: The governors should be really investing in that. I'm glad you talk, talked about spread. I mean, this issue of asymptomatic spread, it's been hot in the news, obviously, this week. First, we, we thought, yes, then the World Health Organization sort of muddied the waters on that and said that was very rare. Now it appears that we're back to, yes, there is a sizable amount of asymptomatic spread. Can you clarify where we stand tonight? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, there's a
5: lot of data on this now. The question is, are people who are asymptomatic um, as contagious as people who are, um, are symptomatic? And the answer to that is we don't know for sure. But what we do know from pretty good studies is that the period in which you're shedding the most virus is when you're Pre-symptomatic, and so um, it's 0.7 days before you develop symptoms is, is your peak infectivity on average. And so people who get COVID are most infectious right before they develop symptoms. Now you can argue that people who are pre-symptomatic are effectively asymptomatic, but that's not quite right. The people who are truly asymptomatic, or people who develop the COVID infection and never develop symptoms, we think those people are still infectious. In fact, we're pretty confident they are. They might be less infectious than the people who are pre-symptomatic, meaning that they aren't symptomatic yet, but they're going to go on to develop symptoms. Those individuals we know for sure are contagious before they develop symptoms and maybe most contagious before they develop symptoms, which is what makes this a nasty infection. In a lot of other viruses, you're most symptomatic when you're sick, so you're less efficient at spreading it, because since you're sick, you're more likely to be in bed or self-identify as being infectious and take precautions not to spread it. With this virus, you're most infectious on the whole, Right before you develop those symptoms,
1: we've spent a good amount of time talking about what's happening in the state of Texas, specifically the city of Houston, which, by the way, Dr. Gottlieb raised Houston to the second highest level of risk today as cases continue to spread there. How should we think about what's taking place in Texas? Do they need to dial back some of their reopen, as has happened today in Nashville? Well, I would
5: certainly slow it down. Um, They're about to enter another phase of their reopening, I think, on June 18th um, or actually June 12th, where they go to 75 percent for a lot of establishments and restaurants are fully open. Bars are now open. Um, They might want to slow that down and wait a little, wait a couple of days until they figure out what the sources of spread are or take selective action in the cities where they see outbreaks. They defer a lot of autonomy to um, individual cities and counties. And so the counties that are experiencing these outbreaks may want to slow down the reopening. In an ideal world, they would figure out what the sources of spread are. And it may be the case that it's just sort of community spread and it's very pervasive in the community right now, in which case it's, it's a, a larger problem versus if they're able to identify certain settings and
1: certain activities that are where the spread is emanating from. Interesting um, note, an article that I saw in The Washington Post today saying that some COVID patients are sick for an awfully long period of time, Dr. Gottlieb, 60 days, if not more, from some lingering form of of COVID. Do we know anything about why?
5: We don't. There seems to be some post-viral syndromes that people are afflicted by. This wouldn't be the only virus that has that kind of sequelae, that kind of consequence. But it does seem to be happening at a higher rate with this virus. And it's not that unlike the syndromes that we were seeing in the children, which seem to be some kind of post-viral manifestation of the virus, maybe some kind of immune-mediated reaction to the virus that was a delayed reaction. There does seem to be the same phenomenon in certain adults. Um, it's not it's not very common, based on what we surmise, um, but it is apparent. Uh, you know, a lot of people have now had this infection, so you know the, the actual numerator of people who have these kinds of post-viral syndromes is probably relatively small compared to the total number we've had it, but larger than we might see with other viruses like the flu.
1: Dr. Gottlieb, I'll be back to you in just a minute. I do want to get more on what's taking place on the ground down in Houston. Uh, Judge Lena Hidalgo is joining me now, the Harris County chief executive of Houston. Uh, Judge Hidalgo, it's good to have you with us tonight.
6: Yes, thank you for having me.
1: Tell me about this decision you made today, as I was just discussing with Dr. Gottlieb, taking Houston to the second highest level of risk
6: yes you know we're watching our hospital admissions very closely and i am growing increasingly concerned that we are approaching the edge of a precipice we are watching the admissions to our general population in our hospitals and icu steadily grow at statistically significant levels And we've reached the highest hospital population we've ever had since the virus started. This Tuesday, it's only grown from there. So we are concerned. It's not at the point to say shut everything back down. But it is at the point where we're saying we have to watch this very, very closely. And we've got to everybody has to take personal responsibility if we want to avoid a crisis. What
1: what conversations, if any, have you had with the governor?
6: You know, we stayed in touch as, as far as the reopening and the just making sure that we are both seeing the same numbers. So our staffs are in communication. And, you know, I've always said from the start, I am concerned about the speed with which things are being reopened. I am going to do everything in my power to try and make that reopening work. I want the economy to reopen. I want that reopening to be sustainable. And what we're seeing right now is that uh, it may not be sustainable. So that's why I'm putting the community on alert to say, look, let's give it an, a, our last shot at this. Let's, let's try and minimize those contacts. Of course, at the county, we've been working on contact tracing, on testing, resources for the homeless population, first responders, everything we can do. But we've not been able to control that spread, and I want to alert the community of that.
1: Do you think that the state of Texas should, as I say, dial back its plans to go to other phases of its reopening and take uh, some stock in what the situation actually is before making the next decision?
6: Look, I can speak for my community, Harris County. We've got Houston and 33 other cities. And what we are seeing is about three weeks, two to three weeks after the first phase of reopening, you see those hospital admissions start rising. And the issue is since then, we've only reopened more. Phase two, we had Mother's Day, Memorial Day, of course, a lot of folks having close contact. So uh, my guidance to the community has been this is not the time to be going to the club, to the bar, to a congregation, uh, any place where you're going to be in close contact with people because we are just exacerbating the problem. So that is my message. Obviously, I have to in terms of of orders, I have to abide by what the governor does. But I'm ultimately responsible for this county, so I want to make sure my community knows what our guidance is, and that is to minimize contacts and to avoid any medium, large gatherings, any place we're going to be in close contact with people. And that is to avoid having to shut down and to avoid ping-ponging our economy between open and close, which ends up being a broader problem in the long term.
1: Judge Hidalgo, I appreciate your time tonight. Good luck to you, folks. We'll be following that story. That's Judge uh, Lena Hidalgo down in Houston for us tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, back to you. I saw another uh, statistic today that was somewhat alarming, uh, obviously, a a new model predicting 170,000 deaths in the United States. Does that number sound reasonable to you? Well, I think that we're going to end up having accruing deaths
5: all the way to the end of the summer. I, I mean, if you look at the statistics right now, we're still accruing about 20,000 cases a day. That's likely to sustain through um, through the summer. I don't think it's going to come down appreciably. I think the death rate's going to fall substantially because more of the cases that we're turning over are community cases. they are people who are less ill. Um, previously, we were diagnosing mostly cases of people who were admitted to the hospital. So they were they were more sick. And so the death rate is going to come down for that reason. And it's also going to come down because we're going to be doing a lot better job in hospitals at preserving life. We've learned how to treat this infection much more effectively. But even if the death rate comes down to, you know, 300 deaths a day from covid um, below 500, certainly I think we're trending towards that you're still going to end up accruing um, a lot of additional deaths between now and the end of the summer. And so you're going to get to total certainly around 150,000, I think, is realistic um, towards the end of the summer and heading into the fall. So this is just going to continue to grow. And that's that's assuming that we don't really have a, a dramatic resurgence in infection. Um, but The other thing is we're doing a lot better job protecting sites like nursing homes where there's a lot of vulnerable people. And that's also going to allow us to preserve more life.
1: We'll get to a couple of tweets in just a moment. I do want to end this part of our conversation, though, on a positive note. There was good news out today uh, about a vaccine and therapeutics from Regeneron. News on those human trials, uh, the first antibody cocktail. What can you tell our viewers tonight about that?
5: Well, these look very promising. Regeneron and Lilly have a- antibodies now in the clinic; they're in human trials. I think that these trials could go very quickly. Um, these are two experienced companies. They know how to develop these drugs. Regeneron has done this before, and these could be available um, in early fall under an emergency use authorization. The safety profile of these products should be relatively easy to establish. We have a lot of other drugs that are developed in a very similar fashion, so we should understand the safety profile, and it's just going to be a question of determining whether or not they work, but I think they will work. The theoretical basis for why these kinds of antibody drugs should work in these settings is well established, and so this is going to give us another therapeutic tool to use in the fall that's going to help us preserve life. You know, what we're likely to see in the fall is if if we do have an epidemic, we're still going to have a high hospitalization rate, so we need to support the hospitals. But I think we're going to do a much better job at keeping people alive and helping to reduce the, the death and disease from this.
1: Let's talk more about how we can reduce the spread. And that's my first Twitter question to you. Tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, John Schultz asking, it seems the common denominator between all East Asian countries that have virtually all stopped significant spread is that face masks are a cultural norm. If we all adopt this in the U.S. and wear face masks, face masks habitually, should we expect the same results?
5: I think so. Face masks work. There was a study saying that if 60 percent of the people wore masks that was 60 60 percent effective, we would get the R, the reproduction rate, below one. So instead of expanding epidemic, you'd have a shrinking one. Yesterday, there was a study out saying if 50 percent of people wore effective face masks, you could reduce transmission below one, again, shrink the epidemic couple of things. People need to have high quality face masks. It's a shame we can't supply our population with better quality face masks. Cloth masks are good, but they're not as good as N95 masks. And then people need to wear them properly. Um, That means when you put on a face mask, it can't just be um, a vehicle by which you end up touching your face more uh, and transmitting more infection that way. So you need to be um, mindful of how you wear the face mask.
1: Uh, Lastly, uh, and I know this is something everybody's thinking about, New Jersey reopening ahead of schedule. My kids haven't seen their grandparents in 90 days, and it's creating a rift in my home. Can we have grandparents over yet to hug their grandkids? Grandmother's a hospice nurse, grandfather, factory worker. We're a work-from-home household. What would you say?
5: I think this is just a question of, you know, what your social network looks like and how much you feel confident that you haven't been exposed to the infection or your kids haven't been Um, My my young children have seen my parents, um, but I feel reasonably confident that we've been able to control our social circle. And it's very low probability that either myself or my children have been in contact with the virus. And so I felt confident. I think you just need to judge that for yourself. There's no reason why there should be anyone should take an absolute approach that they can't have young children in contact with older individuals. I think it's a question of what precautions you've taken leading up to that.
1: Good to know. A question on many minds tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, I'll see you next week. You be well. Thanks a lot. All right, that's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us once again tonight. A resurgence in the outbreak and a bleak warning from the Federal Reserve costing the Dow more than 2,000 points in three days. Here's how things have unfolded so far this week.
7: It is a big day for New York City. The Big Apple set to begin reopening.
1: Record run for stocks and NASDAQ hitting a new all-time high. Is the S&P next?
7: Texas was among the first states to relax its stay-at-home order, letting it expire in April. Now the state's reporting a record number of hospitalizations. After six
3: straight days of gains, the Dow is down about 200 points right now as the reopening rally takes a bit of a breather. It's a long road. It's, uh, it's
8: uh, depending on how you count it. Uh, well, more than 20 million people displaced in the labor market. It's going to take some time.
6: Fed Chair Jay Powell highlighting the level of uncertainty that the Fed has about the economic outlook. The
3: market's not having a good
7: morning on this Thursday.
6: Brutal day for the Bulls, and
7: an ugly close to boot.
5: History shows us that uh, it's very likely that we'll undercut the lows and get to levels that you know I've talked about before, which are maybe
4: as low as uh, 1600 on the S and P.
1: Well, for more on the market's major sell-off today, let's bring in CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us once again. Mike, it's good to see you. What was today? Virus concerns, a pretty dour outlook yesterday on the recovery from the Fed chair, combination of both?
3: Those didn't help. I think they definitely contributed to this um, maybe reassessment of exactly how far the market has come relative to a lot of those dynamics like the infection curve and just really a, a further recognition or reminder that the economy's in a deep hole. It's not going to get out of it very quickly. All those things, though, were coming to a market that had literally had the strongest rally over 10 or 11 weeks in history and where it was looking a bit tenuous. The things you and I talk about a lot it, the, the, the indexes themselves looked a little bit stretched to the upside. Traders are looking overconfident. So some of the things you tend to see when a market is, is ripe for some kind of a pullback were there. I, I will say it wasn't clear that it had to happen in the way it did today. All at once, down five and a half six percent 6% in the major indexes, now down more than 7% from their high only on Monday. And all the other markets, the bond market, uh, the commodities markets, Kind of joining in this flight from risk. So all that says that perhaps we are in for a little more of a stormy period here, but I really doubt it would unwind you know, a huge percentage of the rally anytime soon.
1: I know a lot of people are obviously wondering where this leaves us. You had voices on our network today saying the trend is still up, though you heard Scott Miner today at the end of this clip we just played saying that we're going to go back and retest those old lows, if not break through them. It's a, it's a tug of war now.
3: It is, without a doubt. Now, in the last couple of weeks, there was a lot of comfort being taken in the actual displayed behavior of this market. It wasn't so much, wow, the economic numbers look great or, or corporate uh, earnings look like they're about to rebound quickly. It was the market itself with this very powerful, persistent, and broad rally of a type that you rarely see except after very, very important market bottoms. That Those were all on display. That, that doesn't insulate you from an interim pullback of of some magnitude or chopping around or some kind of scare along the way. But I do think that they earn the market a little bit of the benefit of the doubt for now, even if you can't necessarily pin the strength on what we're seeing in front of our eyes. There's no doubt about it. The infection dynamics are a wrinkle that we're not used to dealing with uh, in in investment uh, terms, because it's just it doesn't kind of follow the same types of of curves that we're used to so I, I wouldn't be too confident about saying we're going to shrug this off easily but it also uh, the, the market itself has, has built up a little bit of credibility here
1: yeah makes for an interesting Friday that's for sure Mike Santoli yeah. thanks so much sure. we'll talk to you soon see you all day tomorrow of course right here on CNBC and here's what's coming up next on our special report
2: it was beef then a fear of a fish shortage now fruits and vegetables. Details on the new risk that just popped up, plus remaking the Great American Stadium. Exclusive renderings next. First, what our country looks like on Thursday night, June 11th.
1: On day 165 of the crisis, here are some headlines on the virus tonight. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin warning against shutting down the economy again, even if cases increase. Apartment leasing in Manhattan down 62 percent in May. And mortgage rates hit a new low, with the 30-year falling below 3 percent. Well, the other night we spoke to you about the pandemic threatening our supply of meat and fish. Now there is fear the fruit and vegetable supply may be hit. Gerald Mann is professor of nutrition science and policy at Tufts University. He's the former undersecretary for food safety. Mr. Mann, it's good to have you back, though it means we've got more problems in our food system. How widespread now do we we think about what's happening with fruits and vegetables?
10: Well, thank you, Scott. It's good to be back with you again, but you're right. It means that there are problems in the food supply. Um, The good news is I think the problems are different here. uh, produce, the supply is very different than our meat supply. Our meat supply is very concentrated in a few providers. Um, with produce, you have so many different farms and uh, packagers and others involved. Um, so I think the good news is you're going to see less disruption than we saw with meat. Um, the, the, the concerning news is that workers are becoming ill and dying as a result of this illness, and that could be prevented.
1: Well, social distancing is, is obviously easier in the fields than a plant, but you do have packaged vegetable and fruit companies that have to deal with shoulder to shoulder, so to speak, conditions.
10: That's correct. But actually, the problem is in both places. In the farm, you're absolutely right. You know, outdoor, it seems the transmission of the virus is much less. And so there isn't concern there. Um, But it's the housing. These are often uh, migrant workers, uh, workers on particular visas. and and they're housed in conditions where they're close together. And then they're brought by buses to the fields where they're close together. So the infections that are occurring on the farms are in those other places and very serious as well. But you're also correct that a greater concern is in these packaging uh, facilities uh, where the demand for uh, lower cost and and trying to go at a higher speed puts those workers at a risk. And also in particular, there's a problem with uh, protective equipment. Uh, The federal government continues not to be able to provide uh, that for workers. It's interesting in farming, you know, uh, because of pesticide applications. Others uh, N-95 masks, those types of respirators are things that they commonly had. Uh, They've lost access to them uh, because the federal government hasn't provided
1: it. How do we think about what prices may do for the consumer? We've seen prices go up, food inflation when it comes to you know beef, red meat. What about fruits and vegetables?
10: I think that food overall, um, the prices are increasing um, because of the challenges of, of providing uh, uh, the supply, the costs, the workers. So you're going to see some increase, uh, but hopefully not too much. And hopefully um, um, we'll, we'll be, it won't be you know, some, but not that much.
1: Haven't had really to, any answers of yes on this to, to date when it relates to the contamination of of the food product itself. Are you concerned at all about that?
10: No, that, that's one thing we know well. We understand that uh, food safety, this illness is not transmitted through our food. And, and so one concern people should not have is that this food might present a, a risk uh, to them. They're, they're, they're safe uh, there. Uh, the concern is that our fellow citizens, people who are working in the farms, are working in the packaging facilities, are getting us uh, sick, uh, they're dying. And if the federal government would do more, that could be uh, prevented.
1: Jerry, you take care. I appreciate you coming back on our show tonight. That's Jerry Mann, professor of nutrition science and policy, Tufts University. As the country reopens, stadiums now forced to rethink their layouts to better allow social distancing. Tonight, what it all may look like when you go to the next game. Here is Diana Olick.
11: Every venue in the country is having these conversations right now. Um, We're talking to baseball owners, football owners, basketball owners, and their operations staff uh, literally every day.
7: Don Barnum leads the global sports studio at architecture firm DLR Group.
11: I think we're gonna see changes in the entry sequence, food and beverage service, and the most uh, impactful thing will be in the seating bowl itself.
7: Barnum and his team are creating virtual designs showing how seating could be modified to create socially distanced boxes complying with the CDC's six-foot separation, which would result in only about 18% stadium capacity. Then, more socially relaxed standards as requirements change.
11: What we hope is that that is either the Threshold to start from and then we move through maybe different gradations of 20, 30, 40, 50 percent.
7: They also looked at expanding more social viewing areas.
11: So you might stand at a railing and watch the game or be in a bar environment where in between socializing you watch part of the game.
7: Food services will also change with fans ordering and purchasing on apps from their seats and then getting an alert when quick pickup is ready. Ticket entry will also become contact free.
11: We put a ticket scanning system into a 75,000-seat stadium last summer, and that was a cost of about $1.5 million.
7: Costs will, of course, vary as you run the gamut of facilities from major professional sports stadiums and arenas to colleges, large and small, and even high schools. But no question, there will be sizable investments across every sports franchise and venue. Diana Olek, CNBC, Washington.
1: Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report.
2: Ahead tonight, a world-famous restaurant tour in a city known for its food on his reopening challenges, plus the battle for black-owned businesses in need of bank loans. Two experts on the subject on why it's so hard. We're back in two minutes.
12: Just brutal, brutal day for the Bulls.
2: Stocks suffer their worst day since March.
4: I think we're going to have a tough slug going here, especially with the increasing number of COVID cases.
2: When the bell finally sounded, the Dow had fallen more than 1,800 points, almost seven percent. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner.
1: Welcome back. In this time when questions about inequality have risen to the surface, capturing attention nationwide, we're talking about another area tonight where the numbers show unfairness. Recent reports show the rate of rejections for business loans for black-owned companies are double the rate of rejections for white Americans. Zanelia Harris is a certified financial planner, president of Harris and Harris Wealth Management Group. Sybil Slade is vice president and financial advisor with Life Plan Financial Advisors, formerly working at the Federal Reserve Bank, of Atlanta. Ladies, I'm so happy you're with me tonight. Thank you for being here.
12: Thank you for having me.
1: Sybil, I, I want to begin with you. Um, 50 of, percent of loans turned down for black owned businesses is such a troubling number. What is the reason, the principal reason? Is it in, in, inherent bias and, and racism or are there other factors, do you think?
13: Well, yes, um, there are other factors as well. Certainly, there are structural barriers, but there are also um, barriers that are not structural. Some things are actually um, incumbent upon the actual borrower uh, to be prepared with, such as their financial documents and statements, such as uh, their credit history. Maybe they have a thin foul, maybe it's the age of the business maybe their cash flow, there is not uh, enough uh, debt coverage ratio to cover the debt. Um, most lenders like to see a two to one debt coverage ratio. So these are some of the uh, things that um, are, um, the consumer is solely responsible with. Sometimes it's just the type of business. Um, some businesses are much more riskier than others.
1: Zanelia, what's at work here, do you think? And by the way, we should note for our viewers that you yourself were recently turned down for a loan.
12: Yes, I was. And I realized at the heart of everything was uh, in America, owning real estate that increases in value is at the foundation of building wealth. And I learned that firsthand in my own experience because um, based off of what happened with the great recession, as we know, property values were hit really hard. My area, I'm in a minority community. I was, my property value was devastated. It has been 10 years now and I'm still recovering from um, 2008 in regards to the growth in my property values. And when I decided to go for, Uh, to apply for a bigger loan. So I I actually did have a line of credit with my local credit union, but I decided to go for a larger loan. And I felt that I was um, prepared because I had an advisory team, my financials looked good. I was prepared from a personal level and a, a professional level, but in the end, I still was denied. And so I was left with you know what else could I have done, and as we know, a lot of small uh, a lot of small businesses that are run by black women tend to struggle with obtaining funding and I found that to be the case for me
1: and Sybil, we saw this as well in the PPP loans recently from the government as well as a public program run through private financial institutions where one of the requirements was The people looking for the loans had to have longstanding relationships with their bank, which may be an issue that we need to discuss
8: as well.
13: Well, um, so, Scott, I do feel that that was the case uh, with the first round. But certainly there were other entities who also had access to doing some of, of the lending as well. But I will share with you that one of the when I talked about those structural barriers earlier, one of them is the compensating factor. So whether the, the individual had a longstanding relationship with the bank or not, if there were two clients, it could be the same exact business sitting across the desk from the loan officer, if one of the clients um, had more net worth and they were their credit and all those things were in order and they actually were re- requiring or requesting a larger loan the loan officer would probably favor that individual over the person asking for the smaller loan because of the amount of uh, time and energy that is put is the same effort to produce the loan or approve the loan. But again, they're getting paid higher for the person with the higher net worth who's requesting the larger loan. And so that is how many of us from Main Street America uh, got shoved to the bottom of the list.
1: I mean, Sybil, the the, the fact of the matter is, too, fifty percent is a, is a high number. There there may be many applications that are withdrawn that we don't even know about, which pushes the numbers up even higher, perhaps.
13: So so you know, your question you're asking about basically the denials. But certainly there's a whole nother uh, swath of people who may have started the application and became discouraged and did not complete the application. And that doesn't take into account those who didn't even bother. They were discouraged from the onset, so they didn't even, they didn't even do a withdrawal of their application. So that's a whole nother segment of the population that I'm sure that uh, that 50% number would be much higher if we actually had those real numbers for those who truly needed the loan and were discouraged or decided to withdraw.
1: Zanilia, how do we fix this? What do we need to do?
12: So I think at the cusp of it is, um, we need to recognize that this problem within the minority community has to be solved with um, actually doing some things differently. Um, Black businesses, um, ha- have struggled with using everything that they have in order to survive and have not always thrived in the environment that we have. And so, you know, we do have these community development in, um, financial institutions that are there to help us. I actually have one um, in my community, and that is the institution that I went through for my loan. But I do think that there needs to be a lot more um, handholding with what is required in order to, um, to uh, move forward in the loan process. Again, I, I had an advisory team that advised me from a CPA to a business banker. Um, and I still felt like, um you know, I thought I was prepared because of the fact that I had all of these things in place. But I think at the begin at the, at the cusp of it all is, you know, providing resources, even more resources, to help guide us through that process, so that even even if we get a no, we truly understand why we got the no, and then we can go back and repair what things we need to fix in order to move forward, so that when we reapply, we're able to um, obtain that funding in order to carry our business and to leave a legacy for our family.
1: Appreciate the conversation tonight. We'll continue to follow this story. Thanks so much for being with us tonight.
12: Thank you for having
13: us. Good to have you you both
1: with us tonight. Uh, Zanelia Harris and Sybil Slade. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report.
2: Ahead, the man behind a string of world famous New Orleans based restaurants on how the reopening is going for him. First, our world on the 165th day of the coronavirus crisis.
1: back. As New Orleans enters phase two, restaurants are preparing to welcome more of their customers. But will that be enough to keep them in business? Ralph Brennan is the president of a world famous New Orleans based restaurant group. He's with us tonight. Mr. Brennan, it's nice to talk to you. Can I get my bananas foster uh, again yes, down sir. in New
8: Orleans? I'd love to make it for you.
1: <laughs> that's good news. Tell me the status We're, of your restaurants. You have a couple open right now at limited capacity, right?
8: That's correct. We have uh, five restaurants in New Orleans. And uh, two of them are open already. They've been open for about three weeks. Uh, Ralph's on the Park out in Mid-City across from City Park and the Museum of Art. And then we have uh, Napoleon House down in the French Quarter that uh, is uh, it's been operating for over 100 years. And it closed both Ralph's and uh, Ralph and uh, Napoleon House uh, have been serving curbside until we reopened. Uh, We'll be opening uh, Brennan's this weekend uh, tomorrow, actually. Uh, and then we have a restaurant in Southern California at Disneyland, the Jazz Kitchen. We got some great news uh, last night from Disney that we'll be able to open there in July. The problem is we're opening at 25 percent capacity. And then on Saturday here in New Orleans, we get to go to 50 percent capacity. And, uh, you know, that's just not enough uh, to, to, to make it. And with the tables separated as far as they are, even the dining experience isn't, isn't the greatest because, uh there's vast, empty space in each of the dining rooms.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, put me on the ground first in New Orleans before we move uh, west to go to, to Disneyland. What does the restaurant look like? How's business been? Are, are you filling all the tables, even in the limited capacity that you're able to?
8: At Ralph's of the Park, we are able to fill up, particularly on the weekends. Uh, we're getting strong support from the neighbors. Uh, that's very much of a local restaurant, and it's surrounded by neighborhoods there in mid-city, and we've been able to fill those up. And so we're hopeful that when we go to 50%, we'll get a little bit more business. We're probably doing about 30% of the revenue that we would normally do on the Friday and Saturday night, but only about 15 or 20% of, of normal on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Napoleon House, unfortunately, because it's very quiet here in the French Quarter. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you could have heard a pin drop down here in the quarter. It's starting to pick up, but it's a slow, slow process. And uh, we have not been able to fill up Napoleon House yet, hmm. uh,
1: What do you anticipate out at out at Disneyland?
8: Uh, You know, I'm hopeful that because it's at Disneyland and with the theme parks there, uh, we will be opening at a reduced capacity. But I'm hopeful, hopefully we'll be able to do much better out there just because, you know, Disney has the marketing uh, pull to bring people to the resort. And
1: what's the status of your staff in in all of your restaurants? Were you you able to keep them on board
8: during all the shutdown or, or how did that work? Well, we've kept our management team in place because I learned that lesson after Hurricane Katrina 15 years ago, uh, that, that if you have your management team in place, it's help, helpful in rebuilding. Uh, it took us quite a, a long time to rebuild after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, our hourly staff, uh, we furloughed uh, everyone, and then uh, we took advantage of the PPP. And eight weeks ago, we brought back uh, our uh our hourly employees for eight weeks and paid them what they would have been making prior to uh, the shutdown. And uh, that is ending, though, uh, this week. So we're going to need to furlough uh, those individuals. uh, In California, fortunately, since we're going to reopen in 28 days, uh, we'll be able to bring them back very quickly and get them working.
1: We wish you well, Ralph. We'll check in with you again. Great bunch of restaurants and what is a great, great restaurant town. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks. All right. Bye that's, bye. that's Ralph Brennan with us tonight. Tonight's top stories, plus our restaurant shout out is next. We are back with our nightly shout out to restaurants operating in the face of the crisis. Tonight, we salute Nilgiri's incoming Georgia, the West End Sports Bar and Grill, Annapolis, Maryland, Fix and Soul Kitchen in Sacramento, California, Golden Gloves Cuisine in Chicago and Mel's Cafe down in Charlottesville, Virginia. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanksforthegrubs and the name, the town, a photo, put it on TV. Now for our quick headlines before we leave you tonight. On day 165 of the virus, Nashville delays the next stage of reopening due to an increase in cases. I'll see you tomorrow on the Halftime Report. For all of us here, I'm Scott Wapner. Have a good night. Be safe. And Shark Tank is next.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx.